Hi, Jewelry District listeners. I'm so excited for you to hear this fantastic interview, but wanted to let you know that we had some technical challenges when we recorded it, so the audio quality is slightly downgraded from our usual standard. These things sometimes come up as we navigate the unique challenges of producing a podcast remotely, but I promise you're not going to want to miss out on hearing this fascinating conversation. So apologies for the slightly rougher quality. Thank you for bearing with us and enjoy the episode. Welcome to The Jewelry District, a podcast by JCK. Today, Rob Bates and Victoria Gamalski talk with Alexander Lasik, Chief Executive Officer of Pandora. Hey, everyone. Welcome to The Jewelry District. This is Victoria Gamelski, Editor-in-Chief of JCK and jckonline.com, and I'm with... Rob Bates, News Director of JCK and jckonline.com. Back from exile, back in New York City, correct? Back in New York. I'm like a boomerang these days. Back in the groove. Very snowy. I'm not sure if New York City has the weather beat in Copenhagen, where our guest is calling in from. want to introduce and welcome Alexander Lasik. He's CEO of Pandora. He's been in his role for coming on two years, and we're thrilled to have him on. Welcome, Alexander. Thank you very much. Well... We always kick things off, Alexander, with a very basic question, which is just tell us about your background. I know prior to Pandora, you were with Britax. In fact, the car safety seat I use for my son. How did you get to Pandora? Tell us about all that came before. So uh, I think that the way I would start is I worked in the, with brands my entire career and, and always stayed in that track. Now, brands spanning from Pringles, which I'm sure you're familiar with, to Vicks, Procrops, to uh, always and all days panty liners, oil of Boulay, Pantene. Uh, so a lot of brands from the Procter and Gamble days. That's where I started my career. Then I moved on to Wreck-It Benkiser. So you guys would be familiar with brands like Lysol, uh, Spray and Wash maybe, Woolite. Um, then we moved back to uh, Sweden. I wanted my kids to kind of see a little bit of Sweden before they leave the nest. And then I ended up working a while for Britax, as you mentioned, childcare products, again, a branded product. And then Pandora came and knocked on my door. And uh, it was a bit of a dream come true, having always worked in an international environment with brands conceived somewhere not where I came from originally. Whereas I kind of regard myself as, you know, Scandinavian, let's say. And we don't have that many big global consumer brands coming out of this part of the world. But Pandora certainly was one. And when that opportunity came, then it was quite uh, interesting. And when you look at all these brands, I mean, they're obviously very different. Like Lysol is very different than Pandora, which is, you know, something you don't have to have. What are the commonalities when you build a brand that has such different applications to people? Like, what are the similarities or what commonalities do you find? I think that the question is more interesting. What's common for brands that are successful? And there I found uh, was that you really, really get deep in your understanding of the consumer, the target audience, as we normally call it, uh, understanding their needs and wants and then figuring out whether you have what it takes to kind of serve up something that's of interest to them. But for me, it always starts being really, really close to understanding what, what goes on in consumers' mind. You know, when, when they woke up, I worked for a couple of years on Head & Shoulders, for instance, 
phenomenal brand, even though initially I thought, how can you get excited about dandruff? is that people are super engaged because when you have dandruff you actually a lot of people then feel that they have a social distancing issue Mm -hmm. maybe relevant in in the pandemic days but because those people would say well i have a bad hair day therefore i don't want to get close to people Mm -hmm. and therefore the brand could actually provide you with a solution that is well beyond necessarily you know having a, a, a good hair look but you took away a bit the stigma that, you know, I may have done it, but I don't need to show it. Is Pandora the first brand that you worked on that is not necessarily a necessity? Not that necessarily, again, head and shoulders is a necessity or, you know, some of these things obviously are, are not necessary. But is this the first one that is, you know, is more of a discretionary purchase or? That, that's kind of interesting if I compare the two portfolios of Record Pinkies and PNG. PNG would typically have much more of what I would call necessities. You know, you need a laundry powder or a hand wash detergent, etc. And therefore, you get a certain, let's say, margin profile of that type of business. There's more, there, it's volume, more people are competing for that space. You don't need a spray and wash, arguably. You could say, well, my laundry should take mm-hmm. care of the base job. But maybe I have a, a garment which I really would like to get that stain out on. And then maybe you use a product like spray and wash. So that's much more of a discretionary item. So, so there's a certain technique, uh, let's say, on how you market and develop these type of products versus the laundry products. And I've been on both sides of the fence. Now, jewelry is then kind of more of a splurge or a luxury uh, item, um, but the logic somehow becomes similar in terms of how you approach the market. When you approached or when you were approached by Pandora, so about two years ago, the company was looking for somebody to lead a turnaround. So what was needed at the time that you joined and how did you first approach that process? So what happened was the company actually had some trouble already going back to 2017 or thereabouts. But of course, coming at the back of a massive success. And I think what happens when you're sat on a massive success, you also become a little bit and I shouldn't say blind, but you, I think you become a bit slow to take on negative signals. It's perfectly normal. And then sometimes you wake up and it's the time and you catch it and then you move on. In the Pandora case, the company didn't necessarily find those signals or react to them quickly enough, uh, which then of course led to big changes in the, in the leadership of the company. And that's kind of what gave me the opportunity to come on board. But between I came on board and kind of the previous CEO left the company, there was a few months in, in the middle where the board had brought in one of the big consulting companies to actually once and for all really go deep on what's really wrong here. Because there had been some kind of activities, but none of, none of them really worked. There was a structural challenge somewhere and the board wasn't sure what it was. So therefore they brought in this kind of army of consultants to try to go go to the bottom of this thing. The marching orders were relatively clear. I then added a few pieces. I reconfigured it a little bit, but the foundations of what was wrong, I think were, were identified. What was wrong? Can you, can you briefly recap what those failures were at the time you entered? Yeah, so, I mean, you can really simplify this and there was really only one issue. Now, we had many, many more issues, but there was one cardinal issue, so I said, there's only one thing that we can fix, that we have to fix, fixing the brand relevance. Because this brand has lost touch with its core audience. So now, and then you can start drilling also, what's the reason? 
And this is the interesting thing about a discretionary category like jewelry, is people don't get negative on you. They just lose interest. They move on to something else because they don't need you. It's interesting because I've heard many Pandora conference calls, and for a while it was all about these kind of business machinations, like we're going to take, we're going to open stores, we're going to take stores away, we're going to do this, we're going to change the supply chain. And now I notice you are talking a lot more about consumer focus and marketing initiatives, and that's obviously where jewelry lives. I mean, as I said, you have to do all those other things as well. Yeah. When 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 something is falling apart. It's not because of a hundred reasons. It's one or two or three things that all of a sudden made people flip. Was the challenge then basically an issue of product design or was it an issue of messaging? You know, so we did all the research and what you have to do with this type of uh, consumer research, we did a huge study. We interviewed what almost 30,000 people globally. Uh, what you also have to do is you have to take that and draw out a timeline and say, have we done a similar type of research a few years back? Because if you just take a picture in time, it, it you know if you if you've been on a boat, you cannot navigate only with one point. You need two points, and then you kind of can orient yourself. And it's the same thing with consumer research. You need to have an anchor point. You need to have a more current point. And now you can try to understand the trends that are going on. And it was quite obvious what those things were. Product design was not one of them. You would always have a portion of the customer base. Uh, which would say, well, I don't like the design. And that number was kind of similar in the past from what I found now. So that didn't, that was not the thing that had changed. People felt that the brand had lost a little bit its clarity. So they said, I don't really know what Pandora stands for anymore. So that was one of the first questions we had to go back and said, you know, is the proposition, is it still relevant? So even if I start talking about it, will people come along? And, you know, lo and behold, that's pretty much what's played out. When you look back, why, why do you think Pandora took off so much in the first place? It's probably been the most successful on a consumer level jewelry brand in 50 years or so. Why do you think the charms continue to strike a chord? Mm. So first of all, we, we have to be clear about one thing. Pandora did not invent charms and bracelets. If, right, so if right. you do anthropological studies, you would find uh, a remnant that go back thousands of years. Now, I think what Pandora did was, yeah, and sometimes these things become pop culture. Why, why does it happen? I, 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 I don't know. I don't have any facts around it, but clearly that's what happened. What you see with successful brands that live over time, they strike a human truth. There is a human truth that I want to express myself. There is a human truth that I want to celebrate my family or big moments in my life or maybe aspirations in my life. So as long as you do this in an authentic way, with a language and a visual identity that's relevant for that day and age, the chances are you're going to kind of have a good life. Where are you in that turnaround now? How would you describe two years on? Like everyone, we would we wish that COVID-19 hadn't happened. And therefore, uh, from a business standpoint, I would have been uh, been able to maybe look back on, on a couple of quarters where we've actually been in a positive territory. Now, I've had large portions of my network closed and open and closed in, during last year, so it's not as clear cut. If you kind of zoom out and say, where was Pandora two years ago and where is Pandora today? It's fair to say that we're in a much healthier place as a company and as a business. There, there is no doubt in my mind. Is it important to you to get younger consumers? I think 
at first Pandora was kind of considered kind of a millennial brand and then it kind of became more of a, you know, a brand for, I would say, a little older women. And, um, you know, there was a lot of stuff targeting moms. And now I notice you're starting to, to use younger celebrities. Is that something that you're looking at, getting a younger consumer involved with the brand? The truth of the matter is, by design or not, if you look at the distribution curve of who buys our product, we follow pretty much the distribution curve of the female population. So we have 15-year-olds that are buying our brand and we have 65-year-olds. Now, naturally, the younger audience have a little bit less disposable, so they will not spend as much. The same goes when you turn around the 50s, where, where I am, and therefore, almost mathematically, between 25 and 40 is where most of the disposable would go, uh, income would, would go, and we kind of follow that curve. Having said that, of course, I also mentioned before that you need to stay relevant. So the big target audience for me today is millennials. They make up the bulk of my sales today. But by 2030, I believe, 30% of the jewelry industry is going to be bought by Gen Zs. Do you have a clear sense of how marketing to millennials differs from marketing to Gen Z? Is there some takeaway that feels essential? I would put it like this. We're learning a lot because we haven't really, outside of the launch of Pandora Me, I don't think we have a, I would call, institutional knowledge on how to speak to them. Right now, we're actually doing a lot of work. There is a difference between millennials and at least there's a, how should I say, stated difference. Whether it, it's actually true, I don't know. But we're a mass market brand. So in a way, I need to be careful also not to become too niche in, in my proposition. We need to be a bit, let's say, less sharp on the edges because we, we need to be speaking to the, to the middle of the market. So you need to stay relevant to the broader population. I want to ask you, just going back to COVID impact, obviously we've talked so much about e-commerce and the massive acceleration of online sales. Did you see that? And, and I imagine it would have differed per market, but how would you describe Pandora's e-commerce business over the last year? So, you know, it's like in, in any sport, you need to have a little bit of luck. So when I joined Pandora, I came off a previous, let's say, management that had not invested much in digital marketing. The way they used e-commerce was as a sales outlet. But these are these are disciplines which you can move from, from being really bad to at least okay, reasonably quick if you have a solid team around you and you're willing to invest the money. So that's kind of one of the first things we did. Then we had, uh, from an e-commerce standpoint, we had 16 different platforms across the globe, which in a way you can say, well, that's not a problem. The, the, the challenge becomes when you say, okay, I want to roll out a new feature. Let's say I want to do uh, Klarna or Afterpay. I have to do it 16 times. So for every upgrade that you want to do, you had to replicate 16 times. And now the problem was they were not all the same platforms. So the code I developed for one platform wasn't necessarily just then straight applicable. So this has been a major issue. So we moved from 16 to 3, and in the future we're going to move to one global platform. So we did all of that work, a lot of that base work, before COVID hit. So when COVID hit, I actually had an engine that was primed to take on the business that ended up happening. And how much of your sales are now e-commerce at this point? So this is also the, my favorite question not to answer because it's the wrong question. The question you should be asking me is how good are you serving customers before they end up with a transaction? 
So the hard labor is the 90% of work that I need to do before I lock the transaction. Then the transaction can happen either in the physical world or online. And for me, it doesn't matter. Financially, it's more or less the same outcomes for me at the bottom line. What constitutes success is the work I do before we end up with the actual economic transaction. Any big news that you can announce here, cool new marketing initiatives you have? No, we lay those cards tight to our chest. It's <laughs> okay. So um, you'll have to watch and see. Pandora has, and it's not your fault, and it's not necessarily the fault of anybody who, who works there, but it's among U.S. retailers who are bulk of our readership. It has kind of a mixed reputation just because some feel that they built it and then it kind of a lot of these demands are put on them and then it, and then it left. You know, you've kind of brought up or intimated that you might be interested in dealing with a little bit more independent retailers. Any any thoughts on that? Or I mean, listen, if if you go back in time, then when Pandora started, it was all done through retail partners because we were a brand. Period. Then over time, we ended up with a franchise network. We ended up opening our own stores, and then you know, online turned up because that's where customers want to conclude some of the transactions. So you end up with this hybrid model. For a brand to be successful, you have to be relevant. You have to kind of understand what customers want at any given point in time. Well, we have to shortly wrap up. I wonder if as you look to the future, if there are one or two particular issues, whether that's technology or marketing, that really keep you up at night or that you feel like you're laser focused on as we recover from this crisis and and move on. Mm. When you're a CEO, I think you get paranoid because you see issues everywhere. But beyond that, I think that we we have not been as successful as we ought to be in China. And if you look at the luxury market globally, that's where a lot of the future growth is pegged. So I need to somehow figure out how to operate in China. Uh, we still think that the U.S. holds a big runway in terms of growth for us, actually. And then this whole digital transformation journey that we are now embarked on. This is just going to continue uh, at an accelerating speed. Not sleepless about necessarily, but it, it's going to change. That's the one thing you would know. And then it's the guessing game is in which direction it's going to change. Where am I going to place my chips to be the winner in the future as well? So, Anything else that we should know? We've covered uh, the history. We've covered where we're currently, where we're going. Maybe a few last words on sustainability. The company has always actually been very, um, how should I say, responsible in this space. I think it was based from the founder, Per Evolton. But we've taken that to the next level, we're making some big commitments. We're only going to use renewable energy. 2025, we're going to go carbon neutral, as well as only be working with recycled precious metals. Also, not just for the good of Pandora, but also we're trying to um, show the industry that when a giant like us uh, makes those statements, there's no reason for the rest of the industry not to follow. Thanks for listening to The Jewelry District. I'm Natalie Comet, the producer of the podcast. Our editor is Olivia Briley. If you like what you've heard, please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast wherever you may listen. We hope you join us next time on The Jewelry District by JCK. Thank you.